You're listening to episode 15 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to episode 15 of Chat About Children. Today we are chatting about sleep and your child. A very um, interesting topic actually and a really interesting chat that I had with Dr. Jim Papadopoulos who is a sleep specialist. We covered a lot of interesting areas within sleep uh, including common sleep issues and their causes and we also looked at learning the signs and symptoms of a sleep difficulty. He also chats a lot about what helps sleep difficulties and gives us some really handy tips on sleep hygiene and some good sleep hygiene principles that we should all aim to follow if we can. Personally, I learned a lot in this episode and I got some really valuable insights too, both from a parent and a professional point of view. So I'm looking forward to sharing this interview that I had with Dr. Jim Papadopoulos. Let's kick it off. Having us join us today for our Chat About Children episode is Dr. Jim Papadopoulos. He is a sleep specialist and he actually began in general paediatrics in 2002 and then a year later he became the first accredited level two paediatric sleep physician in Australasia, which is the highest possible level. He then established the paediatric sleep unit at St. George Private Hospital in Sydney and this continues to be the only private hospital paediatric sleep unit in the state to offer a complete suite of paediatric sleep laboratory services. Then in 2017, this lab became the first to achieve accreditation in Sydney, which is an amazing achievement. And he's also established Australia's first multidisciplinary sleep clinic for developmentally delayed children, the Adolescent Sleep Unit at St George Hospital and the Paediatric Sleep Clinic within the Department of Orthodontics at Sydney Dental Hospital. He's also a conjoint lecturer at the University of New South Wales and at the University of Sydney. He directs the Paediatric Sleep Disorders Unit at St George Private Hospital and is a staff specialist sleep paediatrician at St George Public Hospital. He does see patients Sydney-wide in various locations. And Dr Jim Papadopoulos, we are very grateful to have you join us this afternoon and share your time with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia, for inviting me. I'm very grateful to have this chance to talk to people about what I do. Absolutely. So can we start by you telling us a little about yourself and what it was that interested you to specialise in sleep in the first place? You actually caught me by surprise. I always wanted to be a general paediatrician, so all my training was focused towards becoming the best possible general paediatrician. And towards the end of training, you get to choose electives and I realised at that stage I didn't know anything about sleep. Sleep medicine was a pretty new discipline back then. Mm-hmm. And I thought, all right, I'll do a bit of sleep and I'll combine it with developmental paediatrics because that's the other thing you really need to know well when you're a general paediatrician. Mm-hmm. So I managed to score the scholarship that was going at the time. So I had like four kids at the time. But oh, anyway, wow. we ended up, I ended up getting really interested in it because it sort of seemed to fill in all the gaps that I'd been thinking about as general ped, which is like, how do you actually manage children with learning difficulties and with trouble with concentration and behavior in a holistic way? And the sleep was, it just turned out to be such an important factor in all of that. And I realized that I hadn't even known that, even though I'd trained as a pediatrician. And it was just a big surprise to me how much behavior learning 
etc., is related to how well you sleep, especially as a child. So that's where I took off and branched out. I completed the training in general peds, but I also then went on to do the, the extra stuff that I needed to do to become a fully qualified sleep pediatrician. Fantastic. So when I started working, it was mainly as a general ped because I didn't have much many patients who were sleep patients, and then it built up from there. So now I only do sleep. I don't do any general peds, except what's relevant to fixing someone's sleep. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so right now, what age range of children do you work with? I see them at all ages, from zero all the way up to 18. Wow. I've got a few babies I've had to put on the CPAP to help them breathe while they grew big enough to have their tonsils out. Not only that, but there are a lot of babies who fall through the cracks going through this, the general sort of accepted pathways when they've got sleep difficulties, like going to Tresillian Possum Cottage and so on. That works really well for babies with behavioural issues related to their sleep. When the kids have got physical issues with sleep, often the behavioural treatments don't work or only work a little bit. And so they usually end up seeing me. That's when I dig down and try and find out what the physical issues are affecting their sleep. And I can cheat because I can do sleep studies. That's my thing that other people can't do. It's the sleep study, which gives me the information I need to work out that really important thing and then hopefully address it. And that's when kids start to sleep better. And the behavioral issues then tend to go away after the physical issues are fixed. So that's the babies, the middle school range, sort of the middle of the range of the toddlers and primary school kids. They form a huge part of the practice. Yeah. I guess that sleep apnea tends to affect those preschool age kids and the sort of early primary school kids. And then orthodontic patients start to see me, the orthodontic age range, you know, from nine years old plus. Yeah, that's an interesting, like, tell us about the link there. So children who have got sleep apnea or mouth breathing because of that hasn't been addressed properly often end up with orthodontic problems. Mm. and they're being recognised by the dentists and orthodontists and being referred. They've sort of slipped through the cracks. They may have only been snoring softly or they may have been snoring loudly, but no one's ever sort of jumped on that. The saddest thing that I hear is the kids who have been snoring and have had diagnoses of ADD made, and Mm. they've been told that the child is going to outgrow the snoring and it's not an issue, or they've been told that it's just that's where your kid is, they've got ADD and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. And it's the dentist and orthodontist who are recognising the issue first and then sending wow. them to me and they've got sleep apnea and we try and address it. But see, the longer you wait, the less IQ points you save. Yeah. And the second is that the harder it is to get a cure because as the children get older, it's true that their tonsils and adenoids become less large compared to the rest of their throats. Uh-huh. So trying to cure them by taking out their tonsils and adenoids at age 9 and 10 is often not going to get a cure because mm. they've already developed orthodontic issues, yes. which will make them much narrower. So yep. the orthodontic yeah. problems that they get is they get a high palate yep. and uh, their throat narrower at the back, yep. mm-hmm. and their jaw tends not to grow forward as well, so they end up with what's called an overjet. That's the front teeth coming over the bottom teeth. Yes. So the chin sits further back, and that means the tongue sits further back in your throat. So you end up with sleep apnea that can't be fixed except by well, you still got to take out the tonsils and adenoids because that helps, but then you end up with orthodontic procedures and orthodontic treatments can make the sleep apnea worse while you're being treated. So they have to be supported with CPAP, which oh, is the wow. mask to help them breathe while they sleep. And then at the end of that whole process is a fair chance that they'll have been cured. But if it only had been picked up earlier, they wouldn't yes. have got to that stage, you see? 
So when you say picked up earlier, like what's the eye, like how do you do that? How do you pick it up earlier, particularly if you can't hear them snoring? Because it sounds like snoring is one of the key symptoms, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the, the snoring is a key symptom, but the way that children snore is often not the way adults think snoring is. So children who snore will have audible breathing more often than the loud snoring, the vibratory snoring. So it's called non-vibratory snoring. That's when their throats are so tight that when they breathe through them, it doesn't vibrate. It sounds more like sucking air through a straw. So it's like... Okay. That sort of sound. So they're working hard to breathe, but it's not a snore. It just sounds like they've got heavy breathing when they sleep. Okay. And it's also not all night. It's usually just intermittent. So when kids snore, it's not all night. It's usually at specific periods and it's because it's worse during their dream sleep. Yeah. And dream sleep tends to be deeper and happen more often during the second half of the night. So it's after midnight that they're snoring. Mm. By that time, the parents are asleep and they won't notice their children snoring or they'll only notice it if they happen to get up for some other reason during the night. Yes. Or maybe they go camping or something like that and then they notice that there's a bit of a noise. Or the children go away on a school camp and all their friends say, oh, gee, you snore all night and yeah. you can't sleep. So the non-vibratory snoring, the message there is is just as important as the vibratory snoring, which is the adult yeah. type snoring. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that happens is is that non-vibratory snoring becomes vibratory and then goes back to non-vibratory. So whenever you get a cold or a flu or if you've got into allergy season, you're going to snore more like than like they're both sleep apnea every oh, night. Yeah. So a lot of parents don't follow through because they think, oh, the snoring was loud. But now it's gotten better. Yeah. So it's just been, it's just masked basically. Yeah. So the key then is not, so I get excited. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. The key then is not to look for snoring as the only symptom, right? You got to look for do they have any trouble falling asleep or trouble staying asleep? Mm -hmm. Or are they restless in bed? Or are they mouth breathing a lot when they sleep? Mm -hmm. Are they developing the orthodontic changes which go with sleep apnea? Do they have excessive sort of nightmares, night terrors, sleepwalking, sleep talking, and teeth grinding is a big one. Mm. And how do they wake in the morning? Do they wake looking refreshed and happy, which is normal? Mm-hmm. Do they wake a bit grumpy? Or do they wake okay, but then within an hour they've lost, they run out of steam? Yeah. That's the clue. So if they have an unrefreshing sleep, then there's a sleep disorder. Mm. And it's a physical sleep disorder when it's an unrefreshing sleep. It's not a behavioural thing. So you'll have the kids who who want to co-sleep all night and won't sleep in their own beds and stuff. If they're waking refreshed, it's behavioural. Yeah. If they're not waking refreshed, it's a physical problem making it difficult for them to sleep. So they need the parent as the crutches. Yes. So that's a really important differentiating factor for when a child needs a referral to a sleep specialist as opposed to just let's do some controlled crying or whatever. Yes. How do they act during the day? So during the day, a sleep-deprived kid is going to have trouble with being more inattentive perhaps, mm-hmm. but more often it's actually irritability and anxiety, getting a bit clingy, worrying about things. And you can have kids that are top of the class mm-hmm. who concentrate really well and do well at school, but they've got sleep apnea, which is making them more irritable and, and sort of anxious. So how do they do that though? How do they have the ability to learn effectively and be the top of the class but have sleep apnea? Well, say you've got an IQ of 130, right? Mm-hmm. And you lose 10 points because you've got sleep apnea. That's the average that you lose. Okay. You end up with 120 points. You end up with an IQ of 120, which is Hillary Clinton. Okay. You still function and you function well. 
Yeah. So it affects children of all ranges. Yeah. Now, the reason I got into the developmental stuff side of things is a sort of subspecial hobby thing, and that's why I still do that clinic, is because if you start out at a, with an IQ of 100 and you're average, you get down to 90 and all of a sudden you've got learning difficulties, right? You mm. start out at 90 and you get down to 80, that's a huge problem. Yeah. If you can get someone who's got an IQ of 80 up to 90, you've done a big service, right? Absolutely. You get someone who's 120 up to 130, it's, you know, it's still good. It's still pretty important. good, yes, but I know what you mean. It's just, yeah, it has different implications depending on the baseline that they're starting from in That's a nutshell. It. And you probably see that with your work as well all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So in speech pathology and working with learning difficulties, we do see it and we do more frequently ask parents about sleep, but it helps a lot of not just parents but other health professionals listening to understand what those signs and symptoms are, to understand the differentiating factors between behavioural and physical so they can make appropriate referrals too at the right time. Like how often do you see the stuttering kids who are doing well at school? Heaps. And, uh, heaps, right? Yeah. Don't they have an issue that needs to be addressed? Just because your kid's doing well at school doesn't mean they don't have a problem that needs to be sorted. And let me tell you something, my little guy had stutter. Mm-hmm. And he was snoring and he had big tonsils. Mm-hmm. And so I did a sleep study on him because I thought he had sleep apnea, like two of his brothers. And, in fact, he didn't have sleep apnea. On his study, it came back with signs of reflux, stomach reflux, because that kids with reflux also snore. Yes. And you could be misdiagnosing them by thinking they've got sleep apnea because they've got signs of sleep apnea. And you think, oh, because they're cranky and they're inattentive and they're anxious and they snore and they've got big tonsils, it must be sleep apnea, right? Well, no, that's not the case because only 3% of children, so only 3% of children have got sleep apnea, 10% of children snore. Wow. So three times, like there's twice as many kids out there who are snoring and having problems who don't have sleep apnea as there is who actually have sleep apnea. Interesting. Yeah, you need to test them with sleep studies before you go taking tonsils and adenoids out, even if you're sure. Because reflux kids also pause in their breathing. Mm. They have apnea at night because there's another way protective reflex. Whenever your brain notices that acid's coming up, it stops you breathing so that you can not get the acid down into your lungs and stuff, right? Yeah. And that's really a, a common issue. And you snore because there are two reasons why reflux kids snore. One is there, there's an actual, like a neurological reflex when acid or any chemicals are detected in the bottom third of the esophagus. Uh-huh. It reflexly makes your nasal mucosa swell up and secrete stuff to block yeah. any acid that might get in. And also it can give you wheezing if you're prone to asthma. So your lungs you try and protect themselves from the acid that possibly could get up all the way. So that's one way that you snore. And the second way is that if acid actually does get up there, and burns things up, you're going to snore because you've got that issue. And those kids often also have a hoarse voice and enamel erosion of their teeth, especially the molars. So the dentist says, oh, your child's got chalky teeth at the back or I need to cap them or I need to. That's another way the dentists are picking up issues with snorers and refluxes. And so they send them along for sleep studies because we don't know if they've got sleep apnea or reflux or guess what, both. Yes. Because reflux and sleep apnea go together in the same families and same kids, and one makes the other worse. So if you reflux, oh, you block your breathing more. So if you're going to obstruct, you obstruct more. Yes. And when you obstruct, you do this to yourself, you suck more acid up out of your stomach. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not sounding good. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so they're the kids who, who how often have you seen kids, Sonia, where they've had their tonsils and adenoids out for their sleep apnea, but they're still not sleeping well. Yeah. Hey, absolutely. All the time. Yeah. And the thing is that if you think about sleep disorders in general, mm-hmm. when you ask me what ages, in general, like amongst all children, about 30% of children are going to have a physical problem with their sleep disorder. Yeah. 30%. Yeah. Like I told you before, only 3% have got sleep apnea. What's mm-hmm. the other 27% got? Tell us. <laughs> They've got allergies, asthma, reflux, constipation, eczema. They've got other physical things that are wrecking. Or they might have developed like a body clock issue because of using devices and stuff, screen exposure. It's a big deal nowadays too. Yeah, well, you've got to talk to us more about that, definitely. Yeah, of course. But I'm interested just to the other 27%, it's important for us to be aware of, you know, as parents and professionals, as to what other things yeah. can influence, what other physical factors can influence. So what would be your top three? Would it be reflux, asthma? Uh, probably sleep apnea, reflux, restless legs. Yeah, okay. Restless legs syndrome, we haven't talked about that yet. That's a condition where it runs in families, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> a good one. It runs in families, 15% of the population, where uh, there's a tendency to for your limbs, it can be mm-hmm. your legs, it can be your arms, it can be your jaws. So mm-hmm. restless legs also is associated with teeth grinding. Mm. Got a tendency to sort of clench or squeeze and relax in a rhythmic way during your sleep. And you either feel that and notice it or you don't feel it, but it's still happening, right? Yeah. If you can feel it and notice it and you complain that, you know, your legs are moving by themselves at night and they, they bother you, sometimes it feels like, ants crawling up your legs, all sorts of different sensations are, yeah. are described by people who've got it. If you can feel it, it's called restless leg syndrome. Okay. If you can't feel it but it's there when you do the sleep study and it's moving your sleep, it's called periodic limb movement disorder. Okay. But they're both basically the same thing. And what they are is a lack of dopamine. Mm. You know, dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for your concentration and mood, runs your frontal lobes basically. Yep. If you don't have enough dopamine, it doesn't suppress the reflex we have to move. So it shows up on people with low dopamine or insufficient dopamine or whatever you want to say will show up on sleep studies with periodic limb movements often. Okay. And that's why it's associated with ADD. Mm-hmm. Because what's ADD? ADD is a dopamine lack. Yep. Right? And the medications for ADD are all dopamine reuptake inhibitors or noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors. They're things that increase the amounts of dopamine in your brain. Yes. But they don't help you make any more of it. How do you make dopamine? You <laughs> make it in your brain only while you sleep. Yes. You so you need the main part of sleep to, to re- replenish, refill the gas tank. Uh-huh. Put the dopamine in there again. Uh-huh. And if you don't sleep enough or sleep well enough, you don't have enough dopamine amongst other neurotransmitters. Yes. Or you just uh, it doesn't work properly. It's not just about neurotransmitters. Obviously, there are structural changes in your brain that they can measure when you don't sleep properly, but that's the main issue. The other thing that you need to make dopamine with is iron. Yeah. So you need enough iron in your brain while you sleep to make the dopamine with. Yeah. And guess what? Reflux is low iron. Yeah. And also they may be bleeding and they lose iron that way. So you've got this blend of these patients who come and see me. You've often got sleep apnea, reflux, and restless sleep, all of it. Wow. And so does mum and so does dad and her does, so does half of the sibling. Wow. So you've talked about sleep studies a little now. Yeah. And it sounds like, does it give you all the information you need, that plus a case history, a good thorough case history? Yeah, you've got to do everything. You've got to do all of it. And so 
you know, when I take my histories, they're very thorough. Not only that, like I keep a checklist, so I make sure I don't forget anything, even though I've done it now for I don't know how many years. Yeah. I make sure that I remember every single question. So I ask all about not just whether they snore or not, but everything else as well. Do they have reflux symptoms? Do they have constipation, asthma, eczema, like, and the family history? It all counts. Then you examine the child and you make sure that you don't miss any of the signs. Sometimes you find weird and wonderful things as well. But in general, you're looking at things like the size of the tonsils, the shape of the mouth and the palate, jaw and allergies. You know the dark circles that everyone says, yes. oh, that's a sign that my child is tired? Yeah. Well, most of it's a sign of that they've got allergy. Yes. But it's a dust mite allergy probably because they don't sleep well and they've got dark circles all year round. That's often dust mite. And you just got to look underneath to see if there's cobblestoning as well and you pick it. Or look inside the nose and you can see allergy signs there. Yeah. And I'm amazed that, oh, wow, no one's ever looked up my child's nose before, even though they snore and have sleep difficulties. Well, they've got allergies, man. Yeah. But just because they've got allergies doesn't mean that they don't have sleep apnea, restless legs, reflux, yes. constipation. So when people end up seeing me, like I'm like the end of the line. Uh-huh. They won't come and see me unless there really is a problem, right? <laughs> Yes, yes. I'm going to do a sleep study most of the time because I want to finally get to the bottom of this that people have been faffing around with for years. Yep. So you're speech therapy. Yeah, they've had speech therapy, OT, special help at school, you know, all this other stuff. A lot of them have been on Ritalin and Dexamphetamine and they've had all everything and they still are not quite right. Yeah. So I'm going to do a sleep cheat, get the answer and then fix it. Put it all together and then fix it. That sounds good. Yeah. So in brief, what does fixing it involve? Does it sometimes involve medications? Does it sometimes, yes, it'll involve structural things like tonsils and adenoids, etc. What does fixing it kind of look like? Okay. Think about it this way. General pediatrics of the night. Or, <laughs> yep. You know how you've got Jedis and then yeah. you've got Darth Vader, the Sith? Yeah. Well, I'm the night guy. I yep. do everything that the Jedi's do, but I do it from the dark side. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm going to use surgery if I need to, which is uh-huh. adenotonsillectomies, permanent reductions, whatever. But I don't do this. I refer, right? Of course. I'm going to use reflux medication, constipation medication. I'm going to use melatonin if they need it, if it's appropriate, to help them fall yeah. asleep with body clock. Especially in autism, melatonin's a big, very important part of the armamentarium. Mm. What else? So if they've got allergies, I'm going to say talk to them about dust mite prevention, dust mite reduction, antigen reduction measures. Sometimes I refer them for desensitization. Often I use nasal sprays, sometimes oral antihistamines, and there's asthma. I'm lucky I'm a sort of asthma, like that's part. that was one of my specialisation things as I was going through. Mm-hmm. So normally now I just get kids started on that stuff and then send them back to the GP so that they can write them up an asthma management plan and then manage the asthma from now on. So yep. many kids, I see them and they're on Ventolin every night because they cough at night and it's wrecking their sleep and they find that the Ventolin helps their cough. But no one's ever thought to say, well, let's put you on a preventer and fix your sleep up. Yeah. The problem yeah. is they often also snore. That's why they're seeing me. And sleep apnea mm-hmm. and asthma go together. So if you, lots of studies are shown if you treat sleep apnea, it makes asthma go away or get better. Mm. And there are studies also out there that if you treat nasal allergies with nasal steroids, makes asthma go away and get better as well. Cool. It's all really cool. If you've got a brittle asthmatic or someone ends up in hospital all the time and stuff, often they've got reflux which hasn't been picked up and treated. And once you fix that, the asthma gets better. Yes. 
for me, like that's what I mean by I do the general paediatrics of the night. The other day I picked up, I saw a child who'd been being was being followed, 16 months old, and they only weigh 9.9 kilos. Oh wow! I go, that's not right. What's going on? Why is a child failing the throw? So we worked out that there's definite reflux problems, but mm-hmm. could this also be celiac disease? So that's where the general paediatrics comes in. Yes, because they started coming off at about nine months to ten months of age, and that's when a lot of problems started. And even though their poos are not typically celiac, they've got a bit of a belly to them. So we're going to do some blood tests as well. So when you say, "What do I do to fix it?" That's so I do general paediatrics of the night. Yeah. Some of the other things that I'll do is talk about behavioural ways of fixing things. But I, I do the behavioural stuff after I fix the physical <laughs> stuff. So there might be sleep diaries. There might be control comforting. Let's call it control comforting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Control crying. Sounds nice. Mainly working on sleep onset associations. Mm-hmm. So making sure that the way that the child falls asleep is a helpful. Mm-hmm. And replacing the mother, say, with teddies and blankies and night lights and music and then gradually weaning the mother off kids yep okay the bedrock of all of this is the sleep hygiene stuff yeah absolutely things like you're having a good bedtime routine and making sure you you turn off all your screens half an hour before lights out and some quiet time is good where you play games and stuff instead of watch tv with your kid before they go to sleep to wind Mm -hmm. down no heavy meals within two hours of bedtime avoid heavy exercise within two hours of bedtime Regular meal times, so yeah. you set your body clock. Away. Waking up at the same time each morning, at least while you've got a sleep problem, until you fix it, try and wake up at the same time each morning and, and see some bright light. Bright light exposure helps set your body clock for the next day. Yes. What else? I'm sure. Oh, yeah, caffeine. No caffeine containing drinks. Yep. At least after 4 p.m., but some people are saying after midday as well because caffeine hangs around for a while. Yeah. And that includes cola. You know, Coca-Cola, if the kid... If, this is the thing, though. People blame the Coca-Cola for the sleep problem. But this is a probably a kid who's tired and he can't get by without having his Coke, you know, and he says, yes. oh, if I don't have my Coke, I'll freak out, right? Yeah. So we've got to keep an open mind and look at, not blame, just let's look at what actually is going on here. And look at the big jump, really. The kids are addicted to their phones Yes. and who end up seeing me. You know, the parents have tried taking the phones away and stuff already. Yep. Tried stopping this. But the kid just can't sleep, so he's bored out of his brain in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So he's going to go looking for his phone, so he's got something to do. Yep. They're the kids with a physical problem with their sleep until proven otherwise. Yes. It's not that they're naughty. They just can't sleep. So you figure out that that kid's actually got sleep apnea or silent reflux. And all of a sudden they're falling asleep and they don't need their phone anymore. How good's that? Yeah. Not only that, their marks get better. They're no longer cranky and irritable and anxious. Brilliant. Yeah. We like this. That's it. So, yeah, screens have definitely become an increasing issue. But we can't just blame the screen. You no, see? we've just got to be mindful of the message. I think everything in moderation, but just being mindful of those sleep hygiene strategies you talked about is really, really yeah. important. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, just making sure that those are in place to understand the bigger picture better is obviously going to be helpful. Yeah. And all part of a healthy sleep routine, basically. Yeah. You've got to do all of that right. But if it's broken, if your child's got a physical problem with sleep, you do all that and it still won't work. It's mm. still going to be a problem afterwards. Yep. They're the kids who need me. Yep. So I guess in summary, we've talked about a lot of really valuable stuff and very relevant stuff to, for parents and professionals out there. So if anyone has concerns, their first port of call is to go to their doctor 
obviously, yep. and then say, hey, I need to see a sleep paediatrician. Yep, pretty much. Yep. If the GP is not comfortable in managing what's going on, because like I said, a lot of it, if the GP can recognise the constipation, the allergies, the reflux, the asthma and stuff, and fixes those things and the sleep problem goes away, happy days. Cool. They don't need to refer me, yeah? Yeah. But if they've done all of that stuff and there's still an issue, then they need to see me. The other thing that is really important is that there are some groups of kids who really need a sleep study, and that is when you suspect obstructive sleep apnea, they should have a sleep study. Yeah. That's been the rule since 2011. Mm-hmm. So if a child has snoring and sleep difficulties, waking unrefreshed, acting sleep deprived during the day, yeah. they kind of need a sleep study. Sure, yes. go ahead and start your treatment for allergy and the, and other things too, but refer them for a sleep study. Yeah. And it should be done before any operations. That's the other recommendation because the, the outcome of the sleep study influences a few things. One is, is this a mild case, a moderate case, or a severe case of sleep apnea? Mm. If it's mild, you've got a 90% chance of cure by taking out your tonsils and adenoids. Yeah. That's great. If it's moderate, you've only got a 25% chance of cure by taking out your tonsils and adenoids. There's usually more than one issue going on. Yeah. And because every child, when they have their tonsils and adenoids out for sleep apnea, is better, often the parents of the moderate kids think that they've been cured now because they're so much better. But they've only got a 25% chance of that actually being true. 75% 75% of the time, they actually need more treatment. And if they don't get that more treatment, they end up with orthodontic issues, just makes it almost impossible to cure them later. Yes. Plus, they've had all of those intervening years of suboptimal functioning. I think I need to bring my daughter to see you, Jim. Like, oh, I'm ticking these boxes in my head. You see? So the those kids who still have residual sleep apnea, the, the tragedy of this whole situation is, is that if you'd picked them up and you treated them with Nasonex with a nose spray for allergy, after a year, often those kids have outgrown the residual sleep apnea and that's all you had to do. Yep. But because you didn't do the sleep study first, you didn't know that they were moderate and needed a follow-up sleep study three months post-op, regardless of whether you thought they were cured or not. Yes. And so you've got a three-quarters chance that you got it wrong. Mm-hmm. One quarter of the time is fine, no problem. They were cured. And mm-hmm. hello, it's good. Well, that's why we're talking to you, so you can make us wiser and help us to act when we need to act. Yeah, if there was severe on the sleep study, they would have needed special preoperative care mm. to get them ready for their anaesthetics so they don't end up having problems in the recovery room, mm-hmm. meaning they need to be reinstated and taken into intensive care. Oh, if gosh. you picked up at that severe, then you could have pre-treated them with CPAP like we do all the time. Yep. And they just sail through their operations and have no problems. Yeah. There are certain subgroups of kids who are at risk of severe sleep apnea. Down syndrome kids, kids with cleft palates, kids who are failing to thrive, children under two years of age, all of those kids are at risk of severe sleep apnea. So mm-hmm. they definitely 100% need a sleep study first. Yeah. But that was the case before 2011. Since 2011, when all the research came out about how few kids were being cured by adenotonsillectomy, mm. It became the gold standard to do the study first. Yes. Where sleep studies are available. Yeah. Some places don't have available sleep studies and you go the old way. But the new way, it's not that new, it's seven years ago now. Yep. Is, is to do the studies first, then do the repeat studies if you have to, and stay on top of this issue. Yes. Which is, is not as easy to fix as let's take out the tonsils and adenoids. And the other problem that a lot of people get wrong is my child had sleep apnea, had their tonsils and adenoids out, 
and now they're having trouble at school and they're not concentrating well. Well, it must be ADD now. Mm. They don't consider that maybe they it's still sleep apnea. Yes, yes. They haven't reviewed properly, or they had their they had their most very often now kids are getting their tonsils and adenoids out without sleep study. Yes, and they still have trouble afterwards. So it can't be sleep apnea anymore because they had their tonsils and adenoids out. Number one, we now know that that's possibly not true. Mm. And number two, how about if you took the tonsils and adenoids out of a kid with reflux? Mm. Yeah, they've still got the reflux. They didn't fix anything. Yes, that's right. Yeah, awareness needs to happen in what order and to sequence all of this. And sleep is the foundation in a nutshell. Well, how often do you think a neurosurgeon is going to take out someone's presumed brain tumour because they get lots of headaches without doing a scan? Yeah, that's it. That's a good way to put it, actually. He'll only do it if he's in Africa or something and he's got to drill a hole in and look for it. Yeah, that's right. But if there are scans available in Sydney in 2018 now, why wouldn't you use it? Absolutely. In fact, if you don't use it, it's not doing someone a favour. Yes, yes, yes. So so sleep studies are like, they're the golden secret to really help. It's the diagnostic tool at the end of the day. So. And can it hurt? Can it hurt to do the sleep study? No. Can it hurt not to do the sleep study? Yes. Yes. Potentially, yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, look, I've learned a lot today, I have to say. So thank you. But tell us, just in closing, if you could summarise in one or two sentences what your key take-home message is for parents that do have children with sleep issues. A bit of encouragement would be good. What's your take-home message? Yeah, I think trust your instinct as a parent. Yeah. I think that's the first thing I learned to respect as a general paediatrician. Mm-hmm. And over the years, that's what's like reinforced to me every day. Yeah. The parents who come and see me who say, I'm here now because I asked for the referral and I really needed to, you know, like I know there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. No one else does. A lot of people are telling me, oh, don't worry about it. Or, my, you know, the grandma is saying, you know, don't go there because it's just going to tell you to take out the tonsils. And trust your instinct as the parent. If you're not comfortable with what's going on, then look for help. Yeah, that's yeah. It. You're probably right. Yep. And like me, for sure, 100% will never make fun of you for coming to see me because you're worried about your kid. I'm yes. never going to put you down for that. Yep, yep. Like the other people do, right, or who dismiss people, but I never dismiss. A parent who's worried it needs to be helped. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's really important. It's super important and it is reassuring as a parent. And you do. You want to follow your gut, be proactive. And you're better off knowing than not knowing and regretting it later. So Yeah. What can it hurt to go through the process and reassure yourself, even if there's normal sleep? And you know how many times in my career, out of all of the patients I've seen, hardly any have been normal, where I've said mm. to the parent, don't worry. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. Hardly any. But maybe that's because I see the select few who, who fail everything else and who really have big problems. But that's my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So the gut instinct is accurate a lot of the time. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's been an amazing chat today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your time with us, Dr. Jim Papadopoulos. No worries. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Sorry I talked too much. No, (laughs) not at all. Not at all. It's been awesome. Thank you.
And that wraps up our super valuable interview with Dr. Jim Papadopoulos. I really found that there was so much fantastic information there. Um, He certainly is very passionate about the work that he's doing, and he is doing amazing work with children to rectify their sleep issues. And really, if sleep issues are managed successfully, it would just have such an enormous positive impact on the overall quality of life for a child. And I have to say, good sleep is pretty awesome for adults too. So coming up next episode, we are going to be talking about autism, autism spectrum disorder. We're going to cover what it is, how it's diagnosed, and look at some management avenues when it comes to the area of autism spectrum disorder. So I hope you can join us for that episode. If you have enjoyed today's chat about children with Sonia Bestelich, please do check out our show notes on the site, chataboutchildren.com. And remember to subscribe to our podcast and to share uh, with anyone that you feel this podcast would be valuable for and relevant to. I appreciate you. Chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.